Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape, and this is episode two of two of Sydney Architecture Festival specials. The interview featured in this episode and the last one were recorded at the 2016 Sydney Architecture Festival and AASA conference um, featuring architect and architectural commentator Stuart Harrison. Um, this episode features Indy Johar and the last episode, um, if you want to tune into that one as well, with Professor Laura Lee. Indy Johar um, was such an exciting person to listen to at last year's Global Oration and I encourage everyone to check out the Sydney Architecture Festival website, sydneyarchitecturefestival, all one word, dot org, um, to find out about this year's program and who's going to be giving the Global Oration. It's a really interesting moment on World Architecture Day to have the opportunity to deliver a program like this. And so last year we had the... Um, we had the good fortune of hearing from Indy Johar, who is an architect. He's also the co-founder of Project Zero Zero. Um, he's a senior innovation associate with the Young Foundation and visiting professor at the University of Sheffield. Um, he has co-founded multiple social ventures, um, impact hubs in Westminster and Birmingham, and... Um, He's uh, co-led research projects such as the Compendium for the Civic Economy, um, which is a book I highly recommend. Um, check it out if you want to find out about some really um, small-scale but high-impact um, in terms of social impact programs that architects and innovators have been involved in. So let's hear from Indy Johar in conversation with Stuart Harrison. Well, second keynote here at the AASA conference, which is focused around innovation, is Indy Jahar, English-based architect. Indy, you really just sort of blew everyone away with a, what I'd call a package of hard truths about the profession and about how we might move forward. There's a couple of key themes I wanted to just tease out. One, I guess, was around democracy. One is around equity of the city. Um, and I guess the other is around shaping kind of dark matter. But I wanted to start with this idea of democracy. And you talk about in your lectures it being more than the vote and a kind of stack of things that form democracy. What is democracy when it plays out in the urban environment, do you think? Um, democracy is, uh, like, a, like you so eloquently uh, phrase, is a stack. It's a stack, and the vote is a very small, is a cherry on the cake of it. Actually, if we want to talk about democratic cities, what we talk about in the, what we historically have seen in the development of these sort of environments is the democracy of capital, which is actually the banks, banks for the poor were the first thing that ended up happening. Then we had schools for the poor, then we had libraries, and then we effectively also had at the same time polytechnics and other learning infrastructures, and then we had the vote. And democracy in many ways is firstly actually that, that capacity. Secondly, we also had buildings, building societies, which were fundamentally means for people to organize and build their own futures and build their own housing. So it was actually the capacity to create society in a fuller sense, the power to create society. And what we have to think about is the full stack of infrastructure. And if we talk about democratic cities, we have to start to think about it from that full lens as opposed to get seduced into kind of the visual and aesthetics. And then I think it opens up really interesting domains of how these places are funded, organized, contracted, developed, and facilitated. And I think democracy is not just a kind of a, 
the, the reason why we want to talk about this is actually what we fundamentally want to release as an age for, for massive democratic agency. That is what we're looking for. And we need to create cities which release human capital. We no longer, are, you know, the job in the future will not exist as an idea. The job is a, is a notion that you can pre-allocate what somebody, is, what somebody needs to do and what they need to execute. In the future, near future, more and more, what we're looking for people are for people's incentives and natural behaviors to be actually about driving innovation and capability and releasing their full selves into their work. That requires a different type of city and different type of democratic environments. I think that requires belonging and other relationships. And those are the cities that are really going to succeed into the future. Public good is a concept that obviously drives you. You talk about the historical um, allegiance to the idea of the public good, and I think it links together the democracy discussion and obviously a series of other discussions. Is it impossible to achieve the public good under the current paradigm? Do we need to shift the paradigm fundamentally, or is there enough you know, cultural memory of this idea that we, within the current paradigm we can still report back to this idea of the public good? So... Um, so so there is cultural memory of public good, I think, but also there's a whole new discourse happening about public good. So the rise of social enterprise, the rise of impact investment, the rise of benefit corporations, uh, the rise of kind of all these sort of new institutions for change, I think is fundamentally all, these are all new organisms of public good in the 21st century. So what we need to do is understand the role of architecture and, and reframe it into this new generation. 21st century idea of public good is being starting to be imagined and curated. And this is largely not a kind of, this is not some kind of altruistic idea. I think increasingly many, many people are starting to recognize uh, the interdependency with public goods. So McKinsey re- just released a report of 30% of a corporate's balance sheet is actually based on actually the social environmental conditions of, that, of, of, that, of, the, of the context of that uh, corporate. So we know public good is actually a massive contributor of value. And that is now an economic reality and a comprehended reality rather than just a political reality. And more and more we're seeing capital governance starting to reorganize for those situations. We're having global conversations about new models of governance for preservation of public good. We're talking carbon carbon accounting. These are all externalities that are starting to have to be thought about and managed in 21st century ways. So I think this is is genuinely a 21st century conversation where we take a 19th century idea and adopt it for 21st century means. And I think this is where we need to be heading. You say that really evidence um, and data needs to be our friend as part of this sort of reframing the paradigm. You talk about architects, as many others have, about linking fees to capital costs rather than the projected life cycle costs and the costs beyond that as well. Do you think that um, that will take place in the in the near future? Do you think you know most architects are on board with this? I mean, a lot of we've heard some about it, but are people actually doing this now? Are they beginning to link their fees to future costs or life cycle costs? I think I think what we are at, are at the beginning of that story. So architects will only be able to do those long term fees if they're able to actually um, cash flow that distance. And so that will require architectural practice to start to think about its role and responsibility in quite fundamentally different ways and accountability in different ways. And that requires actually a system-level conversation. And that's where what I, I don't think this is about anomalies of one or two practices making a change. And that's where more and more it's not about saying Indy, zero zero doing good work or X practice doing cool work. I don't think that's the conversation. 
I think this is about a system level conversation, which is why I think you're uniquely placed. You have a, a, a registrar and a, uh, in the room actively investing in provoking actually a new model. And I think that is unique. Certainly in New South Wales, maybe not across the rest of the country. Um, I guess on that issue of one of the really potent things I think you said was around issues around the equity of the city, and I know this is playing out in London, and it's certainly playing out in Sydney, around the city becoming a place for privilege only. I call this a kind of urban apartheid that's beginning to emerge. This is a global problem. This is not just London. This is happening throughout advanced Western Western cities, and it's a problem that's creeping up on people, uh, and it's just bubbling to the surface now, I think, culturally. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the big questions is that what we're seeing is uh, cities, uh, the kind of productive value or the performative value of cities is increasingly uh, less significant than their asset and their stored wealth value. And what we're seeing is, I mean, there's many apartments, many, many apartments. There's no real housing housing shortage in London. It's just apartments lying empty because they're stored asset values. They're kind of financial instruments as opposed to performative architecture. And that's also the reality of many, many buildings and how they're being built. They're built as financial instruments as opposed to tradable financial instruments rather than actually the performative outcome. And I think that's one of the things that we have to get, of, get our act together on. And we have to understand the role of the city is to release human capital and release human capital to the best of its ability. And if that's the fundamental economic reality, how do we start to think about that? How does the state start to think about its role in terms of releasing human capital for its optimum? And I think it would be really interesting if the state turned around and said, well, you know, actually currently we're, we're not releasing 90% of our population's capabilities. And, you know, one of the most profound things I ever heard was that somebody turned around and said, you know, we get all these amazing reports of AIs and distributed uh, autonomous organisms, DAOs and various other things, brilliant, brilliant reports. But you do realize the human being is a 13.8 billion year evolutionary machine, which is probably the smartest decentralized AI walking around right now. And yet we treat them with utter disregard. So if you look at the actual human capacity of a city, and if we were going to unlock the human capacity of 4.5 million people in Sydney or Circa, actually what would that really look like? I don't think we're touching actually... 5% 5% of that capacity. There's a long journey there. And finally, the conference theme is obviously focused around innovation and one of the most potent things you said is that um, you can't innovate through consultancy. Is that really true? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I, I don't think the consultancy model per se, which is effectively where you can predefine what the outcome needs to be or the output needs to be can actually be done in that way. We can say, look, I want a report at this time and that that way. I think innovation requires space and risk, and it requires the risk of failure. And the risk cannot be allocated on the consumer on the procurer side because that doesn't drive it. And I think it requires partnership. It requires a different type of behaviour. And you know that's certainly what we've learned. I mean, it could change, right? So if we can find the practices and the behaviours of 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 21st century architectural practice, we could fall back to actually a new normative practice model which was dealing with these complex issues in a, in a new way. I think consultancy is great when the model and behavior is understood and you're actually optimizing that, that behavior. When the model and behaviors aren't understood, consultancy just can't take that disruptive leap forward because it doesn't work. So I think that's where what, what I was trying to get, get to is I think this leap will require different types of behaviors. India Jahaya, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. And uh, 
that's it for this episode. Thank you to Indy Johar and Stuart for making the time to sit down and have that chat um, during the festival last year. Um, and if you'd like to listen to Stuart's other interview with Professor Laura Lee, that's up online as well. Um, and of course, please go and have a look at the program for this year's Sydney Architecture Festival, sydneyarchitecturefestival.org, book a ticket, get into it, enjoy the October Long Weekend and World Architecture Day. Thank you for listening to Architecture Insights. I'm your host, Di Snape. Mm-hmm.